Well, now, imagine that you found out that uh, Bill Gates was your dad. You all, heard, you all know Bill Gates? You know, he's a pretty notorious bloke, isn't he? It might be a, a little strange for some of you, a small number maybe of you, who are either his age or older, but bear with me on the illustration. In 2016, after, after a loss of $4 billion, with a personal fortune of 75 billion, I believe it's over 100 billion now, uh, Bill has just been, or had just been named, the richest person in the world for three years in a row. That's pretty amazing. He's apparently second richest now. Well, shame on him. Now imagine that disaster had befallen you financially, and you're broke. You've got not a penny to your name. You've amassed serious debts, maxed out your credit cards and loans. Nobody even wants to look at you to lend you any more money. And each night, then, you lay awake, uh, worrying about things. How are you ever going to escape this poverty trap? It seems like, you know, you got yourself into that situation where you need a cap course, where, you know, the, the money going in would just go straight out to pay the interest, and you're just digging deeper and deeper into a pit. Imagine that's you. I hope it's not, but imagine that's you. And then one day, you come home from out for a walk, and on your doorstep, with a great big grin on his face, there's Bill, Bill Gates. And he's just discovered that he is your father. He's your long-lost dad. Now, if you're a, uh, like a, an Apple Mac fan, that's a little bit like the Star Wars thing where, you know, Luke, I am your father sort of thing has happened. It's a disaster. But, uh, but for most of us, that's a pretty exciting thing, isn't it? That's my dad. And, and you discover Bill loves you. Bill loves you. He's got a plan for your life. Uh, and it starts with paying all of your debts. You will be debt-free. It continues with buying you a fantastic house and a car and everything that you could ever want. Anything you need, says Bill. Just ask, son, and I'll take care of it. We've got, time to, we've got a lot of time to make up for here. It's unreal. It's totally unexpected. Why are you being so generous? What do you want from me, you ask him. Why? Because you're my son. I don't want anything from you. This is the absolute least that I can do. I have a limitless account, and I love you. You're my blood. Please accept my generosity. But then you do the strangest thing. As Bill, or Dad, leaves for an important meeting elsewhere, you reach into your pocket, and you rummage around, and you hand him a fistful of coppers from your back pocket. I just want to do something for you you say. Now, I know the whole scenario is strange, but that would be really strange, wouldn't it, to do that for Bill Gates? The last thing Bill needs is a handful of your shrapnel from the, your back pocket. You're not doing anything for him by doing that, are you? Except, except perhaps wearing a hole in his pocket. The interesting thing is that that's actually a pretty good illustration of how people feel they ought to behave towards God. It's a funny thing. It seems that pagan religion has been the, pretty much the same since the dawn of time. People have always held the belief that they must pay their way with the gods. 
uh, as, if, as if the gods need something for them. Remember, we were talking about that last time we were in Judges. Now, we've been in Judges for a little while now, so let, let me remind you of a couple of things. The book starts with the death of Joshua. Joshua had led the people of Israel into the promised land of Canaan and had departed, leaving them the task of driving out the pagan nations from amongst them and settling in the land. But they botched it. They botched the job. They never got rid of the Canaanites or the Canaanite culture. And the situation ended up uh, with them being a melting pot of pagan religions, idol worship. And over and over we read again that the nation turned from God and worshipped Baal or the Ashtoreths. Now, Baal was a major player in the Canaanite paganism of the day. Worshipping Baal was, remember, would have been very appealing to the Israelites. Baal was the fertility god and his goddess wife called Ashtoreth. Uh, You'd make offerings to both of them. Uh, If you made an appropriate offering to both of them, they would make you and your family and your land fertile and prosperous and productive. And I'm sure the residents of the land amongst the Israelites would be quick to tell them, listen, Baal and Ashtoreth have been in this land for years They've been the gods of this land for years and years. You should learn to live with Canaanite values. You should learn to assimilate a bit with us. Because if you take care of the gods who've been here, they'll take care of you. Pay your way. Or the gods are just not going to act on your behalf. You'll be the poorer for it. You know, people still believe that, don't they? If you ask the average person on the streets in Chesterfield what they need to do to be right with God assuming they actually believe in God, they'll tell you something that you have to do. That's exactly what they'll do. They'll tell you something you need to do. In effect, they'll tell you about some kind of offering that they think you ought to present to God to make God pleased with you. You've got to do good to others and live a good life. You've got to pray or go to church or recite the holy book. You've got to go to the temple or to the mosque. You've got to give to the poor. You've got to fast. You've got to go on pilgrimage. You've got to keep the rules. You've got to stop sinning. You've got to meditate, focus, empty yourself. Let go of all your worldly possessions. It's all things that you have to do, isn't it? All, at the end of the day, all of those things are offerings. Offerings to the God. Sacrifices they think will please God and will in turn make God pleasantly disposed towards you. And, you know, to an extent we buy into it as well as Christians, don't we? Don't you buy into that? In a sense, you think, God will be, God will be more pleased with me if I do such and such. He'll be more pleasantly disposed towards me if I live a certain way or do certain things. It's paganism. We looked at it last, last time, didn't we? See, all of those things, though actually some of those things are quite good things that I listed there. But all of them, even the good, the good things, they would be pocket change, actually, wouldn't they? they? They would not make the slightest difference to the way that God sees us. If you really believe what the Bible is, is teaching, if you really believe the gospel, they don't make any difference at all to whether God accepts us or not. 
But you won't see that until, first of all, you see a couple of other things. And that's where, you know, I think it's been quite helpful. It's always helpful to go through a book like Judges. Because what a book like Judges keeps on rubbing our faces in is, is the doctrine of sin. It keeps revealing the heart of mankind to us. So that we're under no illusions that we're better than we're, we, we think we are. The first thing you need to, to see here, I think, is the weakness of man. That we are weak, we are helpless, we are hopeless. See, the story of Samson's birth starts with a people that cannot stop sinning. They just can't stop. Uh, look at, down at verse 1 with me. Again, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so that the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Oh, we've had this so many times now, haven't we? Again, the Israelites did evil. This is actually the seventh time we've had that sentence in the book. Again, the Israelites did evil. Just up to this point in the book. The nation of Israel, under the influence of, of the, the pagan culture around them, and also the innate wickedness and waywardness of their own hearts, keeps them going round in this circle. Do you see? They do evil. God hands them to the enemies. They cry out in misery. God hears, has compassion, sends a rescuer. They are delivered, delivered, delivered from their enemies. And then what do they do? The judge dies and they do evil again and back around the merry-go-round. And round and round it goes, deeper into wickedness with every cycle. And they can't stop sinning. Listen, have you ever tried to stop sinning before, before we point a finger at them? Have you ever tried, I mean really tried, to just quit it? Just stop it? Don't you relate to that horrible cycle where you find yourself again and again doing the things that you hate? As the New Testament puts it, like a dog returning to its vomit. Does that sometimes describe the way you feel about yourself? I'm just like, I'm just like a dog, I return to my vomit. It's a horrible image, isn't it? I'm so weak, we say. Not so dissimilar to the Israelites. But wait, you see, there's a difference this time again. Samson's the last judge in the book. Well done. You've got through all the gory stories of all the... Actually, there's more gory stories to come, but not about the judges. This is the last judge, the last of the 12. Uh, and look at how the story starts. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So the people cried out for a... No. They don't, do they? They didn't cry out for mercy. They don't cry out for rescue. Nothing. No, this time, they don't even whimper. It's interesting, isn't it? Either the, I mean, you might start thinking that maybe the, the, the author of the book has just got bored of, of telling us this. But actually, the evidence is against that. For 40 years, these people have been enslaved by the Philistines. That's what we're told. And they don't ask for help. Why? Because I think what's happened here is they've actually become content with slavery. They've actually made peace with their own slavery. Their God, Yahweh, who brought them out of slavery in Egypt with a promise of an abundant land of their own, flowing with milk and honey. And then you get this. What a sorry picture. They're happy to settle for servitude. And sad to say, it's a very familiar picture in our world today. 
The Bible describes people as being slaves to sin. We are in bondage. We are slaves, enslaved by our passions and our desires. Just like the nation of Israel here. See, we, we give ourselves to the veneration of, to the worship of, all kinds of wrong things, false gods. That's what we do. And we think, you know, we, we think that these gods are going to make us happy. They, we think that there'll be satisfaction in them. Think of the things that people live for and pursue in their lives. A goal, perhaps. You've got a 10-year plan, a goal, something you want to achieve, and it's on your mind all the time. An experience, a buzz, a high. And, and we either end up never actually really grasping these things, or we do, and then suddenly we come crashing down because we, f- we find that they fail to deliver every time. And either way, they drag us further and further away from God and deeper and deeper into addiction. Do you know, actually, another word for idolatry, a pretty good word for idolatry, is addiction, isn't it? The appetite, you see, for for the things that we want grows ever stronger and stronger, and yet the satisfaction they deliver gets less and less diminishing returns, isn't it? And the world preaches us the message that, you know, here, here, is, here is freedom. That the only true freedom is the, is the freedom to pursue your dreams any way you like, to do what you want to do, to be what you want to be, to say you are what you think you want to be. But that road always leads, not to freedom, but to the worst kind of slavery. We need to, we need to reveal that to the world, don't we? Because no one can see it. Why? Because they're content in their slavery. They're asleep in it. Don't rock the boat. Don't spoil the fun. Don't tell me about the damage I'm doing to myself, to my body, to my soul. I don't want to know. Let's take, for example, the, uh, the example of internet pornography. It's low-hanging fruit. It's very easy to show this with. I was interested to read a, a little while back that the US governor of Utah, Gary Herbert, declared just a couple of years ago that the prolific access to internet pornography is a public health hazard. That's what he said. He said it's addictive and it's ruining lives. Here's what he called for, and I quote, this is from his report from the governor. He said, the need for education, prevention, research and policy change at the community and societal level in order to address the pornography epidemic that is harming the citizens of Utah and the nation. He's caught, he was calling for that. All of which is patently true. And all the statistics and all the data shows it's true. But he came under tremendous fire. An absolute barrage of criticism. Why? Because people see access to that kind of material as an essential part of their freedom. Freedom. Don't take my freedom away from me. He's showing them it's slavery. (laughs) All the statistics are saying it's slavery. And they say, don't take away our freedom. Two very different perspectives, aren't they? It interests me. I mean, you're just sticking on this. 
Isn't it interesting how often sitcoms in our culture will joke about this slavery? They make jokes about it. They trivialise it. Like it's a perfectly normal thing. Stop making such a fuss about it. Boys will be boys. Ha, ha, ha. Aren't they kind of charming, really, that they do these things? Is it any surprise that teenagers who used to be conscience-struck about that kind of thing are now dismissing it? It's actually becoming old hat now, the whole thing. We noticed, we noticed a, like a, a complete change a few years ago at the youth camps I do, where previous years, it was like a, a year it changed. Previous years, it, it, we, would, we would do a little bit of time one-to-one with some of these young men, and they would come sort of shamefaced, slightly embarrassed to raise the topic that they were struggling in that area. Uh, and then you'd help them out and you'd pray with them. And then that next year, there was this change where they would just come in fairly, well, I struggle with the thing everyone struggles with kind of attitude. Like as if there was no, you know, and, and to say that to an older man that's uh, mentoring you. And you sort of think, well, where, where's, even, where's even the gravity, the seriousness of this? Making peace with the slavery. Making peace with the slavery. See, when we try to reveal the slavery for what it is, to wake up our slumbering culture, it seems that no one ever really wants to hear. I take, a, take a look at chapter 15. You'll see that this is what's happening. Look at chapter 15 later on in the story of Samson. Here you've got Samson. It's a wonderful story. We'll get to it soon. It's quite an amusing story. He's taken the jawbone of an ass to 1,000 Philistines. And, of course, you get the line that he's, he's... It's like one of those bad lines, Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of lines, isn't it? With the jawbone of an ass, I made an ass out of them sort of line. And then we read in verse 11 of chapter 15, if you flick over, look, straight afterwards, then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realise the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? It's a man who's just slain a thousand of them. They haven't touched him. The deliverer has risen. Oh, don't rock the boat, Samson. We're content with slavery. Can you see the portrait building up here? This is where Israel have got to now. And people are no different really today, are they? We continually rebel and turn away from God and do evil. We reject God. Look at the culture. We reject God uh, and we worship. We give ourselves in the pursuit of other things, things that we believe will please us, but eventually they enslave us. And we don't even see it. It's exactly us, isn't it? What can we do? Well, chapter 13 introduces us to a couple who come onto the scene, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. Have a a read with me from verse 2. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. It's a great start to a story, isn't it? Here we have two interesting characters. We have a wife with absolutely nothing to offer, and a husband who desperately wants to pay his way. 
First, we meet the missus. So when Sarah and I were in Tanzania, Sarah, I may have told this before, uh, had to get used to being called Mama Andy. Uh, he didn't have any children yet, but she was Mama Andy. She was never called Sarah the whole time. <laughs> uh, in African culture, um, if, the, if the wife actually manages to have a child, she then gets elevated to Mama Nathan, in Sarah's case. She never really has her name again. Likewise, Manoa has no first, Manoa's, uh, Mrs. Manoa even, has no first name. She's just Manoa's wife. She's just Mama Manoa. But God is about to do something wonderful for her, this woman without even a name. God is going to lift her out of her shame of child, childlessness, which would have been a dreadful shame in the culture. It's, the end of, it's an end of a line for a family, isn't it, to have no children? The point that the writer is surely trying to make here is he's setting the scene for the lowliness of Samson's birth, the unlikeliness, the lowliness. He's born to a reject. No doubt the woman that many in the town look down on, Manoah's old, Manoah's missus, you know, she's a bit, of a, a bit of a failure, really. They pitied her, maybe. Nameless, barren. When she dies, that'll be the end. Yeah? Yet this woman... This woman is going to become Israel's great hope. She's going to become the hope of the people of God. Her role is going to be to bring forth the deliverer. But actually, on paper, she's unable. She's unable to do it. She was, however, a bit swifter on the uptake than her husband. She was a much sharper character. Have a look, verse 6. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, you will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. And God then graciously answers Manoah's prayer and comes again. So verse 12, Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that will govern the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I've commanded her. This is obviously very, very important, and it will become important as we look at the story unfolding in future weeks. We need this. Got to have this sharp right in your head. Apparently, it seems that in the Bible, men need to be told things over and over. You notice that in stories in the Old Testament? They have to have their name called several times. They need instructions repeated. Well, it's no different here. The instructions have now been repeated three times. Listen to your wife, Manoah. The boy is to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite vow was taken voluntarily by a person to show that they would be completely dedicated to God. That's really what the Nazarite vow was about. It's explained in Numbers chapter 6, and it's not to be confused with being a Nazarene. I have people who confuse it with that. Nazarene from Nazareth. Nazirite, dedicated to God. Very different. The person taking the vow would, as you've just read, for a period, certainly uh, as they took the vow in, um, in number six, for a period they would abstain from all grape 
products and wine, anything to do with the vine. They would keep strictly ceremonially clean and they would not cut their hair. This boy was to be in Nazarite his whole life, not just for a period of time. It's going to take some dedication and care to keep that one going, isn't it? Even, we're told, from the womb. So even before he's born, his mum's got to start keeping the Nazarite uh, code. This will be a boy totally dedicated to God. God's boy. Manoah's dream has come true, hasn't it? He's going to be a dad. His family's not going to end with him. Manoah is going to have a legacy. That's great news for Manoah, isn't it? So how does he respond? Well, Manoah starts to thinking, what can I do in return? How can I pay for this? What can I do in return for this man of God? Look at verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, oh, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Or as the footnote in your Bibles would say, it is wonderful. Full of wonder. Manoah wants to contribute wants to make some kind of a contribution. I wonder where he got that idea from. But the angel of the Lord directs him rather to worship. Worship. Offer it to the Lord. There is no price to be paid. It's a very hard concept to get, isn't it? When we live in a world where there's no such thing as a free lunch. The world's always been that way, hasn't it? You pay your way. God does not require anything from Manoah. And that's hard for him to deal with. What a picture of the weakness of mankind that you've got here. We're always rebelling. We're easily addicted and enslaved by sin. We're unaware of our own predicament that we're in. We're powerless to help ourselves. We have a wrong understanding of God. And even when we see the problem and we start to suddenly wake up to what the problem is, we come up with the wrong solution. One thing Manoah does get right, after the Lord ascends in the flames, in the the end of the story there, in the flames of the offering, he realizes who he's been talking to in verse 22. Take a look. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. You know, I don't, this is why I think he's not perhaps the sharpest tool in the box, old Manoah. But wisely, he has got an intelligent wife. She replies along the lines of, look, if God was going to kill us, Do you really think he would have just come back again and spelled everything out that we are to do and given us this this particular job? But listen, Manoah's gut is right, isn't it? He's right in a sense. The gap between God, between the Lord, the wonderful one, between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and mankind is so massive that it takes a miracle for the two parties to have a face-to-face. It takes a miracle. As God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, do you remember? Moses wanted to to see the Lord face-to-face. But in Exodus chapter 3, but, says God, you cannot see my face because no one can see me and live. And the Lord said there's a place 
near me where you can stand on a rock and when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you can see my back. But my face, my face must not be seen, says God. Here's an interesting thing. I discovered, to my delight, that you can buy fire suits on the internet that will allow you to enter a situation where a room is at over 1,000 degrees centigrade. Don't you just want to buy one? I mean, it's just fantastic. They're made for entering a kiln. You can put one of these suits on, you can walk directly into a brick kiln. How amazing would that be? Imagine entering a kiln without one on. You heard the story of Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace? In the same way, a sinful human being could never stand before such a holy creator. Awesome and powerful. Even his name, did you see in verse 18? It's beyond comprehension. That's what wonderful means. Full of wonder. You can't grasp it even. The normal result of such an encounter should be death. There is no coming together of those two parties face to face. Unless... Unless God condescends, unless God stoops down, unless God insulates us against his utter glory and holiness, unless he humbles himself, takes on a form that we can meet with, if he doesn't do that, we would be consumed, rightly so. One thing Manoah's got right, he understands the power of the almighty God, doesn't he? And it is the power and strength of the almighty God that shines so clearly against, in contrast with the weakness of mankind in this story. See, the nation may not even have the strength, may not even have the self-awareness to cry out in their slavery. I mean, it's so pathetic, isn't it? But the gracious God of the Bible doesn't even need to hear a cry. He sees this lost humanity and his heart breaks for them. That's true of the world we live in now. Don't doubt it. The Gospel writer, Matthew, says of Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, unable to do anything for themselves, like sheep without a shepherd, wandering all over the place, unable to come. This, in this story, this, the God of the Bible, he is the one who's come to seek and save the lost sheep who've wandered off, who've gone their own way, gone off looking for greener grass and come to a sticky end. Lost sinner, you may be sitting here, you might be sitting here, blissfully unaware up to this point of your slavery, of your lostness, unaware of the judgment that actually awaits you, unaware even of the great chasm that there is between you and the holy God, his repulsion by your sin. But the God of the Bible holds out rescue to you nonetheless. Will you reach out and take hold of it? He holds out hope where there is no hope for you. You know, it's an amazing story, isn't it? God doesn't even need the job half done. 
He doesn't need an Ehud or a Gideon. Right? That's why I think we've pushed it further in this story. You know, he doesn't need this potential hero who just needs a bit of spit and polish. Ready heroes, you know, just three minutes in the microwave and they're ready to serve. No, God doesn't need that. God will build one from scratch. That's what you've got in Samson. A hero built from scratch. God's starting basically from, from the atom and creating a hero from obscurity, from human impossibility. And the one thing he doesn't need is any contribution from us. The very idea actually is ludicrous, isn't it? See, the reason why we buy into the idea of contributing towards our standing with God is that we've got no concept, have we, of the gap there is between us and the Almighty God, the gap that our sin even creates. You know, all of our good work, all of our devotion, what are they really? They're like, they're like pebbles, aren't they? You know, imagine that the, the standard God is requiring is, is, is as far away as the moon to us. And here we come with our pebbles, trying to pile them all up together to create some kind of way that we can get all the way up to the moon. It's ludicrous, isn't it? It's like dust on the scales. When it comes to making ourselves acceptable to God, it's an irrelevancy. And you'd see that if you could only grasp the magnitude of the distance between us and God. What we need is for God to come down here, miraculously, to come down into our mess and to save us. And mercifully, God has sent such a hero. His name was Jesus. And the story of Samson, despite all of his flaws that we will see in the coming weeks, points us to him. That's the ironic thing, isn't it? He's a picture of us, Samson, but he's also a picture of the rescuer. In Jesus, we see God's hero. We see his champion. We see a saviour born in the most unexpected and lowly situation. The son of God born to a peasant girl. A virgin of all things. The impossibility of it all. Laid in an animal eating trough. And though we are slaves to sin, though we are slaves to our passions and our evil desires, even though we might actually be in that state where we've just made peace with our sin, still he came. Still he came, our saviour. We didn't call for him. Instead, he calls to us. Calls to us through the gospel. Instead, he breathes life. He brings life to our bones. Sight to our eyes. That's the saviour God of the Bible. Came to deliver us from our greatest enemy, from our slave master, from sin itself, to set us free, to give us that glorious hope of eternal life. Do you know that hope? If you're sitting here tonight and you don't know that hope, I mean, I pr my prayer is that you will come to him. He accomplished it all through the most ex unexpected way of all, didn't he? The cross on Calvary's hill. Because it was there that he took the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion, for our idolatry, for our worshipping of everything else except him. It was on the cross he took our sin. It was on the cross he was punished so that we don't have to be. So I want to ask you tonight, just as we finish up, what are you trusting to get right with God? What's your confidence in? What ideas have you perhaps bought into? Are you trying to offer God the spare change from your back pocket? Your best efforts, your best efforts at being good? 
Listen, your, your debt is far too large, but your saviour is great. There's only one thing to trust, one person, God's rescuer, his hero, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great mercy towards us. Helpless, hopeless as we are, that even whilst we were your enemies, indifferent to you, slaves to our passions and desires, even then you sent us a saviour, the saviour who came to seek and to save the lost. Help us to take in, Lord, we pray, the marvel and the wonder of your generous salvation, that we might trust you alone. Amen.